Hey y'all, and welcome back to another episode of the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast that talks shop, shit, and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. As always, I'm your host, Catherine Mills. I'm a reservoir engineer with a focus on advanced characterization. So today, let us discuss the evolution of geosciences in the oil field. Too many times is the focus of the oil patch put on the engineers. And in all honesty, that might be because we are the ones responsible for the extraction of the oil. But the geos, the geologists, geomechanists, geophysicists, exploration teams, these are the people who have been responsible for not only finding the oil, but characterizing the matrix. And as you can tell, they have done a damn good job. But how does this side of the matrix plan to evolve and optimize with the unpredictable landscape that is oil and gas? What new evaluation techniques are coming out of this sector that will help us bank for 5, 10, 20 years out? Today, our influencer is here to discuss just that. She hails from Connecticut and Wyoming with an emphasis on environmental impacts and petroleum geology. She has seen all spectrums of the geosciences, from prospecting to reclamation, and she has quite literally left no rock unturned. Today, she is a champion for interdisciplinary evaluations and has cultivated quite the cult following. Kat Campbell, welcome to the Crude Audacity podcast. Thank you. I really like that introduction. I know. Isn't that so fun? <laughs> well, it's actually very true because I'm going to call them groupies, geo groupies. <laughs> when everyone found out that I would be interviewing you, they sort of wrote the questions for me. And I did do the research, but I'm an engineer, not a geologist. So I kind of let them take the uh, reins. And we're going to see what your uh, quiet stalkers have come up with for you. I'm ready for the challenge. <laughs> well, the first thing that everyone wants to know is how you ascended the role that you have today. Why oil and gas? Why the environment? Really, how did you decide to move into the oil patch itself? And what steps have you taken to get here? Well, we can start at the beginning. <laughs> when I was three... Really? Three? <laughs> um, I guess it was probably five because it was written or six. But um, I found one of my first poems when I was cleaning out my stuff in my parents' uh, <laughs> basement, and it was called My Favorite Rock. That was, was one of your first poems? Yeah. For so like... Yeah. Um, and it was a piece of rose quartz. And so I wrote a poem about my love of rose quartz. And so I think that was really the, the starting point for me. I love that. And my entire life I've used energy. So trying to be a realist, you know. Yeah, a realist instead of uh, what happened this weekend for that march. Exactly. <laughs> um, I knew, my entire life I've known I wanted to be a scientist. Mm -hmm. And my focus is always on applied science instead of the academic side. And I realized that after doing my undergrad work and doing some research with my undergrad advisor, which I absolutely loved and valued that experience, but decided that for me, the best approach would be something that was more applied and you could directly test what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And oil and gas is absolutely the best for that. You take I a like theory, <laughs> you drill a well, and you see if you're right. Um, I have friends who did amazing work looking at a rock from the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And Ooh. just, it's so cool what they were looking at. But how do you test your theories and how do you, how do you actually take the next step in that? Mm -hmm. And for me, I didn't find that fulfilling. And that work needs to happen to yes. help our understanding of the earth. But personally, I want to drill a well and test it. Yeah. Um, so I started out from hailing from Connecticut, the uh, not known for its 
geology was a um, failed arm of a rift. So we did have that going for us. Okay. But um, <laughs> I went to undergrad at Connecticut College okay. and started in marine biology and then English and ended up in environmental studies. So why environmental studies? They didn't have geology. Okay. And so I followed the geologist. There was one around. <laughs> there was one. <laughs> <laughs> I was his TA, his field assistant, his lab assistant. I literally spent every second just following him around trying to absorb geology by osmosis. <laughs> he was very patient <laughs> and still keeps in touch with me, so I'm honored by that. That's wonderful. Um, but I did a, a thesis, an undergrad thesis with him on beach geomorphology, which was, again, very applied. Mm-hmm. Um, we looked at how beaches are impacted by hurricanes. Ooh. And we looked at a beach with a seawall versus a beach that had a natural dune system. Okay. And so again, this is, you can actually see it happening. You can see mm-hmm. the increase in storm frequency removing beaches that have seawalls and the direct impact on human population. And so that kind of triggered this curiosity in me. And so I went and got my master's in um, geology at the University of Wyoming and um, of course chose strontium isotopes as my, <laughs> as my thesis topic because that's really exciting to me. But I looked at um, strontium isotopes as tracers of produced Colbin natural gas water in the Powder River Basin, yeah. which was the hot topic at the time. Now, if you mention uh, Colbin natural gas, you kind of get a blank stare. But back in 2005, <laughs> that was that was a big deal. That was a big deal that was in it. 2005. <laughs> yeah, especially when you get gas up to $12 per MCF. And oh, those were happier days. Those were happy days. <laughs> um, but that was, again, kind of an environmental tilt which was okay. really neat to be able to see, just to understand another side of how the earth works mm-hmm. and to understand how water interacts with rocks and how those tracers are picked up. Um, and that's something that's been very helpful in my career and has given me a niche that potentially has helped me through layoffs. And that's that's Ooh. one thing that... Um, that's a good point. ...that we can talk about later is just yeah. how you stand out from the crowd. Mm-hmm. And one of those is to to look at what else you can be an expert in besides just your discipline. Yes. So that that's one thing that helped me. Um, from at Wyoming, we had to interview with oil companies. <laughs> Not had to, but it was highly recommended. Highly recommended. Yes. Such and, interview. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it was they wanted us to have interview experience. Yeah. And the best way to get that is to interview. Mm-hmm. And we had five or six oil companies that would come and do recruitment events. Mm-hmm. And so we had those interviews. And, and Wyoming's a, a great place for that. Oh, yeah. And such good rocks. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I had several internship opportunities. This, again, was 2005, 2006, a different era mm-hmm. in our industry. And um, ended up doing an internship with BP in 2006 and absolutely loved it. I didn't necessarily want to go into oil at that point. Yeah. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Probably work at a state survey or something and just... I think communication in the public is my true passion, mm-hmm. was my true passion. I really like what I do now, but um, <laughs> this is kind Note of a good to mix. employer. Yeah. I really like my job. I still like what I do. <laughs> um, but I get to do, interact with the public mm-hmm. now too, which is nice. So I, yeah, anyway. Um, so I did that internship and I worked Sakhalin Island off the coast of Russia. Wow. Which was an extremely challenging. That's a whole different world of oil and gas. Yeah. And especially coming from... A school that didn't have a geology department and not having an undergrad in geology. So I had to do my undergrad work and my master's work and TA all yeah. at the University of Wyoming. And I only had two years of funding. So I was wow. trying to do a lot at that point. So coming into my um, internship, I didn't have the strongest background mm-hmm. in a lot of the basic petroleum geology stuff. So it was um, a lot of late nights and not taking a day <laughs> off for an entire summer 
but I did it and Good. learned a ton in the process and found again thinking outside of the box was very, box was very helpful. Um, I was noticing some weird trends in oil production hmm. and couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And then I looked at regime changes in regime the changes. <laughs> Russian political spectrum and those correlated nicely with production. Um, Geopolitical, look yes, at you. Exactly. <laughs> so it, it was really a great wake-up call that sometimes controls in oil and gas aren't always related to the rocks. I mean, yeah. rocks are the most important thing in oil and gas, but sometimes other things can influence it. Yeah. So just putting it out there. Rocks are still important. <laughs> so that was that was a great opportunity. I decided not to go with a major after that. Mm-hmm. It felt more like a number, and it a lot of it felt almost forced yeah. with the, the culture that they're trying to use the same culture in the field as they do in the office. And you can get siloed pretty easily if you're not careful. Yeah. The people were amazing. I had some incredible friends, incredible mentors, and I value that. And it's fun that BP's here now yeah, um, I in know. Denver, which is great. Um, but I decided that the best fit for me would be mid-size or something smaller. Okay. But I still wanted something with a training program. Yes, exactly. That's key. Yeah. <laughs> so coming out of my grad work... Um, had several offers and it was very, very difficult because mm-hmm. it was Bakersfield or Houston. And, um, Ain't it the truth? <laughs> yeah. And I am a mountain girl through and through. Yeah. I spend every morning looking out the window at the sunrise over the mountains outside my home and every possible second running or playing with my kids in the mountains. That's, that's what drives me and keeps me going, mm-hmm. just looking at my rocks. Um, <laughs> So I knew that I wasn't going to be able to thrive personally in one of those environments. Mm-hmm. So I um, ended up turning down all the jobs, which was a really good idea. And That's then, very bold. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Canna came for an interview, and I'd been crossed off the interview list. Mm-hmm. And was like, what? How can I be crossed off the interview list? This is my last hope. And I love this company. This, this really seemed like a good fit. It was the right size. It happened to me more than once. So... <laughs> So I sat outside of the room where they were doing interviews until yes. they were done. <laughs> and just as they were opening the door, one of my students came over to me and started giving me a hard time about a grade that I'd given her on a lab. And I was like, I have office hours in 14 minutes. Please see me then. So the interviewers are kind of looking at me like, do you want to talk to us? Why are you blocking the hallway? Yeah, like, are we allowed to leave? <laughs> no, no. And so I just stopped him and said, hi, I'm Kat Campbell. Um, mm-hmm. I submitted my resume. I was crossed off the list. I'm just really curious why. What can I do to make myself a better candidate going forward? Let's talk. And um, one of the interviewers was Terry Olson. And she said, you know, I saw your resume. I don't know why you were crossed off. Let's do an interview. Heck yeah. So I went in for an interview and still a little fired up for my student. Yeah. But you're like, I'm definitely failing her. (laughs) That that pizzazz apparently worked. And um, they gave me a job offer. And so I ended up going to work for Encana. Yeah. And it was it was really great because being in Wyoming, I was extremely familiar with the geology of Wyoming. So they put me on the Wind River team and working Frenchy Draw Field. And it was... I know that field. <laughs> I love Frenchy Draw. It's a great place to start. That is an enigma wrapped in a labyrinth. Everything of, in yeah. <laughs> Wind River might be. <laughs> it's, yeah. But a really fun place to start as a geologist. And what's great is Terry is now one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. And she is the one who gave me my start in oil and gas. So it's kind of a That's fun wonderful. connection. That's That's full circle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those people that you meet. Um, we're actually going to talk about confocal microscopy tomorrow evening with some wine. Doesn't that sound fun? I have no idea what that is. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so it started out 
at in Canna, uh-huh. and they had a two-year program for new grads that was a training program, regularly scheduled um, training opportunities all over the spectrum of oil and gas, from mm-hmm. reservoir engineering production to um, small-scale poor measurement techniques and um, touring core lab, traveling all over the country Ooh, looking at that's cool. <laughs> different rocks. It was, it was a really neat training program. And I think looking at the big crew change, this is an example from that. They cut the program about two months before we were supposed to graduate from it. And what? Um, Terry and some of the other mentors started leaving the company and it was kind of like, huh, what's going on yeah, here? Yeah, what's happening? And I, I had no idea. I was just very upset to lose <laughs> these people that I'd looked up to, but yeah. just kind of kept going. Um, and started to seek out training in other ways with the PTTC, Petroleum mm-hmm. Technology Transfer Council, yes. or through RMAG, or um, other professional groups and societies. Mm-hmm. And that worked out pretty well. And Incana still had training for us, but it wasn't as formal as yeah, it yeah. was initially. But it was an amazing experience in working on an interdisciplinary team, mm-hmm. um, managing people in the field. Um, it was all very challenging, but it was a great experience. And I learned so much mm-hmm. in that. And then from there went on, I continued in environmental geology within Canna, and I helped co-chair the um, Nat- National Petroleum Council Prudent Development of North American Oil and Natural Gas Resources and the Onshore Operations Subcommittee, one of those that, awesome titles. That is a mouthful of a title. <laughs> oh my goodness. Under Secretary Chu. And so we wrote this report in uh, 2011. It was really, really cool to work with leaders from all over the country and look at the best management practices for onshore operations okay. in the U.S. and compile them into a document that the industry could use. Yeah. And we had a lot of environmental groups at the table. Um, and it was it was really cool working with them to figure out what are their concerns and then mm-hmm. how can we address those and create best management practices. Mm-hmm. And then got out of environmental geology and worked in the Peons Basin okay. from Canada doing development. And that was really neat. We were just starting the horizontal revolution there. Yeah. So I drilled some of the first horizontal wells. I remember um, spending Easter on the rig um, for one of those early wells and just hanging out there with one of the other geologists picking his brain. He'd been there several years longer than I was. And just to have that downtime mm-hmm. to learn was was amazing. And being in this incredibly beautiful area and just thinking about what's underneath us. And sipping was, on some rig coffee. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> um, but that was back when it was actually better to be on the rig geosteering because you could just run and grab the file from yeah. the, the hands instead of waiting for it to try to transfer via the horrible internet and trying to steer from the office or from home. <laughs> amazing how that's changed where it's faster to be at home. Yeah. I'm sitting here staring right now. Yeah. Did you know that? <laughs> she actually is <laughs> on her cell phone. It's amazing. <laughs> I think we're good. There might be a fault. Anyway, um, but I feel like I reached a point at Encana that in, uh, after about four and a half years that it was time to um, move on and try mm-hmm. something new. I wanted to go to a smaller company and um, just have more of an impact. Yeah. As you mentioned, the siloed feeling was yeah. very real. And also that big crew change concept at Encana was was very real. Yeah, we started, I bet it was, yeah. yeah. We started seeing a lot of the senior people leaving, taking packages. They had, if you were at five at 55, you could get insurance. And so it was very um, lucrative for people to retire early. Lucrative for them, but not for me. Yeah, and so exactly. <laughs> I was afraid that I wasn't going to have um, the mentorship that I felt I wanted and needed yeah. to grow. And so I switched over to Robert L. Bayless Producer, and they are a small private company located in Denver mm-hmm. with operations throughout the Rocky Mountains. And I was actually able to work internationally for them. 
Really? Which living and working in Denver was extremely rare. And small privates like that, you don't get a lot of international opportunities. No, we had over 3 million acres in Australia. What? And it was, (laughs) it was really cool. And that was, you know, $120 oil. So again, different exploration. Yeah. (laughs) And they actually were part of a a huge discovery in Australia. Um, So it was fun to watch that happen and kind of support it. Um, And then just working in the Caribbean, had some other prospects in Europe, and it was just excuse me, it was just really fun to take some of these concepts from North America and apply them throughout the world where people mm-hmm. haven't tried these technologies. Exactly. So to look at things differently. Um, that, was, that was amazing. And I was very lucky to have three mentors um, with 30 plus years experience and me. Um, <laughs> Matt Silverman was my boss and he is one of the most incredible people you'll ever meet. Um, very kind, very patient, mm-hmm. and just an incredible view on business and geology and how those go together. I like that. It was That was great. And then George Coriel was another geologist with Bayless, and he could see in the 3D. It was amazing. He could His, see in the 3D. He could describe these structures that were very complex working um, Weaver Ridge on the Douglas Creek Arch. And what? the way he could explain things, it was so valuable, and I learned an amazing amount from him. That's amazing. And then Tom Spurs, the third geologist there, he was awesome he was an explorationist through and through you just you see this log and he's like why didn't they test that zone we should test that zone what about the sacred we need the sacred and just full of ideas and energy so working with those three guys was so valuable that's so cool i hope they hear i hope they hear this oh geez (laughs) maybe i'll get you to interview them too Hmm. maybe (laughs) and then just the company it was really small so we all did everything Early on, when we drilled a well, we'd have our engineers out as our company men, and I'd go out and hang out with a mud logger and just kind of yeah. look at samples with them. So it was, it was very hands-on. Okay, good. So you were getting the overlap from mm-hmm. geo to engineering as well. Yeah, that's kind. Of, that was kind of revolutionary then it, at that time. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. This was what 2012 when I started there, mm-hmm. um, and being a small company, you do you have to do everything yourself, and so we were trying to permit permit it was six or seven miles of two-dimensional or 2D seismic and so we spent three or four years trying to push these permits through because it it took that long yeah it was an area that there were two plants that were supposed to be listed as um, endangered but yeah they didn't end up getting listed and so we hired a company to write all of the necessary documentation and then they didn't get listed so we had to rewrite everything we did the least it was amazing what we went through to make this work Mm -hmm. and fish and wildlife they were like this is the greatest project we've ever seen this should go with it (laughs) BLM, we went through more project managers and botanists, and mm-hmm. it was it was very, very challenging. But in the end, we got the data and took the BLM out there for a tour, and they looked at it and said, oh, this isn't as bad as we thought. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Four years later, and that was their response? Yeah. But they, they were great. We went and looked at fossils and just had a great time looking yeah, at geology like, in the field. Yeah, they were like, teach us geology. <laughs> no problem, BLM. <laughs> but it was fun to be out there and just kind of see yeah. the world from their eyes and show them what we love. Mm-hmm. And it was fun. I was very lucky. I kind of recognized a bed I was standing on the Green River Formation as having some insect fossils. I was like, you know, there are lots of fossils around here. They're like, oh, really? So I flipped over the rock I was standing on. And there were a couple of bug fossils in there. So I was very, very lucky. And they're like, wow, you're really good at this. I was like, oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Got this. <laughs> a little bit of luck <laughs> and lots of mapping. They don't need to know that. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, but I was there until 2017. And that was, oh, that was awesome. That was such a good experience. 
But again, I realized that it wasn't exactly fitting what I needed. Okay. Um, it's a small company. It's going to stay a small company. It's mm-hmm. worked for them since the 1960s, and it's going to continue to work for them. Yeah. And I think they were looking for a geologist who would kind of step into the role as the more senior guys decided to um, take a step back. So not necessarily a lifer, but someone just to assume that responsibility or ascend that responsibility over yeah. time. And yeah. I felt like I needed more experience in drilling and new technologies okay. and um, something a little bit faster paced yeah. um, mm-hmm. to, at this point in my career. And I found uh, this company called Camino Natural Resources, mm-hmm. and I met the CEO, Ward Polzine, when he was my mentor with the Denver Petroleum Club. And I did that in 2014. I was very pregnant. But through that, (laughs) you meet once a a month and listen to a speaker. You have interdisciplinary groups. Okay. Um, It was so valuable. And so I spent a year getting to know Ward, and this was when he was building Centennial. So we were able to watch him build this private equity-backed company and just see that process, mm-hmm. and it was absolutely fascinating. We still get together regularly as a team. And I love that. It's, it's pretty special. Um, and it's fun watching everyone get married and have kids and I just know. advancements in career. So that's been exciting. Um, but I, was, I called Ward and just was kind of explaining what I was feeling at Bayless, and he said, well, you know, our company is going to get going pretty soon. We're going to need a geologist. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested, pass me your resume, and I'll send it on to the team. And if they're interested, they'll get in touch with you. Yeah. So, of course, I sent them my resume. Yeah, I would too. (laughs) You're like, yes, please. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And yeah, the rest is history. Met with their VP of Geoscience, and we had an amazingly long coffee discussion and a great time. Um, And And you've been there for, what, two years Almost two years. The day before Halloween is my two-year anniversary, because my second day at work, I wore my inflatable dinosaur costume. Did you really? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. You just let it fly then. That's amazing. (laughs) I love that. This year, I'm going to be a narwhal. (laughs) Well, you said something very interesting. You talked about interdisciplinary teams. And back before the beginning of the great crew change, um, as it's known in industry, there really wasn't an interdisciplinary approach. There were more siloed teams. You Mm -hmm. didn't really see geologists, you know, interact with engineers. And I've been in several situations where I've had managers say, don't ask them that. There's no point. You know, just worry about your DCA. And as I've had the fortune to move on to more technical teams who do believe in interdisciplinary approaches, geologists, geoscientists have become my mentors, my champions. And really, I mean, I by no means, I can't stand it when people ask me to become some sort of geologist for them because I think there's a true art to each discipline, uh, discipline within subsurface. Mm-hmm. Um But that's something that's really started happening kind of midway through the great crew change. So I'm wondering from your side of the matrix, can you tell me what was, what is, and what you see happening in terms of geosciences and where, how y'all are gaining more of that seat at the table that you should have had all, all along, so to speak? Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a good point. (laughs) Um, Definitely. That was one of the things that I didn't like about BPU was that very siloed feel. Yeah. Um, which is one of the reasons I didn't want to go with them. In Canada, we had companies kept trying to restructure, and they were either restructuring to have just geoscience teams mm-hmm. and just engineering teams, and in Canada had restructured to be an interdisciplinary team. Okay. But we were still very separated. We had our own little section in the hall, and we would talk to engineers, but it was... Um, so what did interdisciplinary mean in the beginning as opposed to what it means now? I think interdisciplinary meant that you had a team with people of those disciplines Mm -hmm. all in the same team, whereas now we actually work together. Okay. 
and we rely on each other. Um, I like that. <laughs> right now, I'm working with a reservoir engineer who's doing petrophysics for us. Mm-hmm. And so we work very closely every single day looking at data. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that would have happened 10 years ago. No, I don't think it would have. It's, and it's an old school mentality. It is, yeah. And you, you don't get anywhere if everyone's just doing their thing. Mm-hmm. You need to, as you said, respect each other's knowledge that um, each discipline has so much to offer mm-hmm. and that gets lost if, if you don't work together. And even in drilling, we work very closely with the ops team. We're on the phone with them constantly uh, talking about changes in lithology and how that's impacting ROP mm-hmm. and um, is it shoulder wear on the bit or is it change in lithology? What's, what's going on here creating this situation? And so everyone's talking all the time mm-hmm. and when we did ops at Incana, it didn't feel that way. We would talk to a managing geologist who would maybe talk to someone on the rig, but it okay. was just, it was very, very separate. Yeah. Um, do you think that's, as an industry as whole and whole, do you think we are successfully moving away from that type of environment and actually embracing that true interdisciplinary approach? Or do you think we still have a ways to go? I think the smaller companies, it's easier to have that interdisciplinary approach mm-hmm. just because you have specific people with specific roles. We don't have very much overlap at Camino. Mm -hmm. And so you have, when we started, we had our two ops guys and we had our four geologists and our (laughs) reservoir engineer. And so with one person doing each role, you had to work together. Yeah. And then now as we're starting to grow, since we already have that basis, it's continuing, which is great. That's wonderful. Um, Bigger companies, if they've always done it that way, that tends to be their motto. Yeah. Although the companies that are more successful are the companies that are allowing these interdisciplinary teams to exist. Mm-hmm. And so talking to friends at bigger companies, I'd say the shift is happening. I don't think it's quite permeated the industry yet, but okay. we're heading in that way. And I think as if this downturn continues, then those teams will be the most successful and those companies will move ahead. Okay. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, speaking of the downturn, we are, I, I've been told that on a, on the quiet side, um, geos are getting hit pretty hard for it. So for those graduating, for those, um, you know, at their five, just under the 10-year mark, because it, it takes it takes a little while to sort of earn your stripes in the geo uh, world. What do you see happening? Are there a lot of layoffs? Is there, is there you know, <laughs> I guess, are there jobs still out there for everyone? That's tough. Um, it, and it varies by location. There are layoffs happening. It's rampant in geology right now. Really? Um, Whiting just did major layoffs and they laid off these world-class explorationists that had these discoveries for the company that just like, I I want that person on my team. Yeah. And they had a a science lab where they were pioneering technology and really changing how we see the world at Mm -hmm. the micro scale, at the, at the poor scale. And that team's now been dissipated. All those people were laid off. Really? And that's, that's so hard to see that you don't have this advancement in technology anymore from that company. And it seems like geologists are some of the earlier people to go. They can be seen as overhead because a lot of times you just need your ops geo, a development geo, and you can go forward Mm -hmm. to a point. And then you're going to hit a wall and you don't have that expertise to understand why things are happening in your wells that you don't, you can't understand because you don't have a geologist to help you. So, and also people are trying to replace geologists with computers, with a big data revolution. Yeah, exactly. That you can use statistics to find oil. And algorithms only get you so far. If you have um, spots on a map, mm-hmm. you can an algorithm is going to map that in a perfect circle with evenly spaced contour lines. Mm-hmm. But maybe you're looking at a channel system. And as a geologist, I know what it should look like. Yeah. 
and I have the data, and therefore I can map it using the depositional environment and the data, whereas the machine's going to use the data. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have the back knowledge of this depositional environment or hasn't read the latest paper or <laughs> talked to the student who did the thesis on it. So it's there's a there's a piece that machines will never be, be able, able to fill. Yeah, you can't reproduce a human QC. And that's where geology really comes in, is you have these ideas, can it actually work? And that's something that we can offer to engineers to say, that's a great idea, but have you thought about this? We're seeing a lot of cuts happening in these subsurface teams, but these are the groups of people who are really responsible for steering the company towards the next big play, the next... Uh, the next asset. And yet the emphasis is being taken off or the value is being uh, taken off of these teams and they are being cut. So for a company that is doing that, how, how do you see them progressing forward? How do you see this affecting our industry when we still have to plan for 5, 10, 20 years out? That is going to be a challenge. Um, <laughs> these, these companies that don't have their technical staff anymore, <clears throat> they are going to keep doing it the way they've always done it. And that's worked for now. Just economics? Yep, economics. Just drive your decisions by economics, and you're going to produce wells. You're not going to get any better. But as long as you're cash flow positive, maybe you'll stay cash flow positive. So it'll work in the short term for sure. Mm -hmm. Just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Um, But if you need to step out or you see some kind of anomalous change in your production, how are you going to explain that? Because we're running into issues with parent-child communications. We're actually fracking in and taking away reserves from parent wells, from second-generation wells that are in a section. So people are messing up their spacing analysis. They're messing up their DCA. Economics can't be the only driver for the future. Yeah, reservoir heterogeneity doesn't care about economics. Exactly. And that's where geoscience comes in. Mm -hmm. So these companies, I'm sure they'll have to rehire, but (laughs) the, the problem is that they have this black mark of laying off everyone. So yeah. if you have a couple job offers, you're not going to go with that one because they've already <laughs> laid everyone off once. Why wouldn't they do it again when exactly. things get bad? So the companies that are holding the people who are helping them, that's that's going to give them a leg up. And I think smaller companies, um, when you lay down all your rigs, that's the time to do research mm-hmm. instead of lay everyone off. That, yeah, it's going to hurt and there's going to be a lot of overhead. But the amazing advancements you can make in the understanding of your reservoir and just the mapping that you can get done, um, the petrophysics work you can get done, going through all the papers and core data, all the stuff that's piling up on your desks while you're drilling, you can go through that. Mm -hmm. And that's such a valuable time, the learning that you can have coming out of that. And companies need to have the long-term vision that there is so much work out there and so much data that it can become a hindrance. And you need that time to process it. Yes. And so that's, that's what you can do instead of laying people off. You can let them work. <laughs> I like that idea. <laughs> let them work. <laughs> let them do their jobs. Well, there are some new, um, I don't know what to call them specifically, new technologies, new evaluation techniques coming out of geosciences. And one is a big, heavy topic that I don't think necessarily everyone has figured out yet, but facies evaluations and near borehole characterizations uh, or something as far as Uh, preservation of organic matter. So I am not a geologist by any stretch of the imagination. So why are those sort of the hot topics that you're seeing come out of new frontiers for geosciences? Why why are they going to matter in the long run? Can you kind of take us through some of the basics for a better understanding of things such as facies or near borehole borehole characterization? 
<laughs> Those are really big topics right now. Mm-hmm. And when you go to AAPG or other conferences, that's the kind of stuff that's showing up um, in the posters and presentations. Um, Facey's characterization is being done using everything that we have. We're throwing petrophysics at it. We're throwing um, seismic at it. It's it's coming from everywhere. Mm-hmm. And what's pretty neat with it is now we have all these different types of data and we're using all of them for Facey's characterization. So pre or post stack um, seismic attributes, um, that's being used for Facey's characterization combined with petrophysics of control wells. Um, throw in XRD of cuttings and you can create a model that really can tell you where you're drilling. And especially in our basin, I'm working in the Anadarko Basin, mm-hmm. it's extremely structurally complex. Yeah. And so when you go through a fault, you have an estimation of the throw on your fault. But is it 20 feet or 40 feet? And you need to figure out where you are on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. So if you have a model where you have a very strong facies, um, well, a very strong facies model, then you can try to figure out where you are on the other side of the fault. And you can follow facies that have a high ROP. If you have this this model, you can put your wellbore into it and on a live moment by moment, you can steer using this. Mm-hmm. And that's so important when everything is coming down to the capital spend. If you can cut off a half day of drilling time or a day or a week, that's going to be the company that's successful. And yeah. so the species characterization is coming into that. So it's actually being applied at the bit. It's not just this nice thing to know. And that's that's one of the big things about facies characterization right now is that we're applying it and we're using it. But I've had companies come to me and ask for evaluations such as that, and it actually means <clears throat> something to them. But we tend to dumb it down. If we could truly identify, you know, 21 plots on a ternary plot or 21 characterizations on a ternary plot, they, they still want less than 10. How can you group it a little bit better? And I've also had the complete opposite where it doesn't mean anything to them. It's not something they're interested in. It has nothing to do with their day-to-day operations, drilling, production, what have you. So does that does that matter? I mean, if companies are surviving without it, what what's the benefit there? The benefit is they haven't tried it. <laughs> Give it a try. They could survive better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Again, it's that survival versus thriving. Mm-hmm. And with the cost environment, anything you can do to get that extra dollar off of your AFE is going to make you better than your competitor. And this is one of the great tools that you can use. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the number of facies that you look at, it's going to vary basin by basin and by your by your project. <laughs> section by section. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and what your goals are. If you're trying to do a detailed geo model, then you're going to have a lot of facies because yeah. you can, I mean, there's an infinite number of facies. It just depends on how much data you have. True. But on the... The drilling scale or petrophysical scale, it's defined by the number of logs that you have and yeah. um, how well you control it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's that's something that goes into it and then what your team actually needs. Mm-hmm. So part of this is understanding where to stop. And that's very important in what we do because you can keep running with this forever. But that 80 or 90% solution can really make a, a change at your bottom line. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's part of this is knowing how that's best That's really to the driver team. here. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned TOC. Yes. And that is a big deal. Okay. So um, in what way? Because engineers don't really, we don't really get it. The, in our new world of our source rock is also a reservoir. Yes. Um, TOC is super important to generate our hydrocarbons, but it's also giving us a space to... Um, kids are fine. Don't okay. worry about kids. Good. They're cute. <laughs> um, it's also giving us a place to store the hydrocarbons. Mm-hmm. 
And so understanding that carriage and porosity and how to actually quantify that in a poor measurement, that's all... Um, Something's burning. Something's burning. Yeah. Okay, nothing's burning. <laughs> Nothing is burning. I can confirm that. Okay, so talk to me about <laughs> some TOC. <laughs> well, you, you burn the TOC. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> <sighs> the life of a mom, a working mom. Um, okay, so uh, having understanding the storage of inside the carriage is a huge component, and that's something that is still being worked on. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those technological advancements that – um, we need to understand and how do you how do you model that in your petrophysical calculations? It's so, really hard to do. It is, yeah. yeah. And it's everyone's doing it differently, and it's it's kind of fun to see that's a problem, how that's though. evolving. I think it might be like I mean I like how it's evolving, but you're mm-hmm. right, everyone is doing it differently. Yeah. So it's like no one's figured out that secret sauce. Not yet. Okay. Yeah, but there are there are some pretty new exciting technologies um, as far as modeling pores, and one of them is called confocal microscopy. And <laughs> this one is really cool. Um, there's a group in Missoula, Montana, Missoula, Montana called AIM Geoanalytics, and they uh, developed this technology. It, it's, the technique has been around since the 60s, but it's been used in life sciences. Okay. And so that's one of the things about advancements in our industry is we need to look around us and see what other people are doing Mm -hmm. and look at what the life sciences are doing and can we use any of that technology to understand our rocks better like the the ct machines that you go into weatherford labs and it's the ct machine that you see at the hospital with a little figure of a person on the side of it and you just drive your rock through it and it's (laughs) it's a very it's just applying this technology to geology So confocal falls into this uh, spectrum as well, and it's a way to actually um, image effective porosity because mm-hmm. you're injecting this epoxy into the rock, and if you can visualize the pore, it means the epoxy got there, mm-hmm. and so there's a pathway to that pore. Um, and so we're trying to figure out how do we apply this to our core values, how do we apply it in petrophysics. There's just so much that we're trying to understand, and so yeah. can you use this in kerogen? Is it how can we apply this technology? So it's a lot of advancements are being made, but it's just a matter of how do we best apply it and how do we understand it? How do we quantify this with recoverable hydrocarbons, hydrocarbons in place? How do mm-hmm. we look at um, asphaltines versus resins versus yeah. saturates versus aromatics? And how are we, what are we actually getting out of it? Um, when we say we have 20% recovery factor, 20% of what? Yeah. Is that truly original oil in place or is that just movable oil? So all of okay. these questions are coming into it and the more science we can do and the better we get at this, the more we can answer those questions. So that's those are kind of the big questions kind of veering off the carriage and TOC topic. Yeah, yeah. But um, just that imaging and truly understanding the reservoir is something that is still ahead of us. And every day we come up with new stuff and it's, it's fun and exciting to watch. Is there anything out there right now that we did not mention that you're kind of excited about or you're just keeping your kind of ear to the ground to see where it might go? Um... I was having an interesting conversation with a friend today, and he mentioned that technology is changing so rapidly mm-hmm. that the concept of what of what is possible is hard to imagine. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there are technologies we're watching, but I think the technologies that are going to make the most difference, we don't know about yet. Hmm. And it's going to take people who aren't versed in the traditional way of doing things to find those technologies and to come up with them. And so I think continued investment in 
young people, new ideas, even people who've been around forever having mm-hmm. new ideas. That's that's how we're going to change things. Well, it's funny you should mention young people, new ideas. So we are in a pretty volatile time. Like, quite frankly, everyone's really lucky to have their jobs if they do have one right now. But is that why we're drinking wine right now? Could be. Okay. But I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but with volatility comes innovation. And it is a chance for the disruptors, the innovators, the <clears throat> new leadership to step up finally. You know, when otherwise in the happy-go-lucky, just the way we're going to do everything, that, that opportunity might not exist because everybody's happy at $120 oil. So you're so heavily involved with uh, all of these networks and bringing along all of these new engineers, new geoscientists, uh, new generation of oil and gas what recommendations do you have for those that it's time to step up, how to earn their seat at the table, how to find their voice, and where to go? That's a big question. Yeah. And it's something... <laughs> That's why we're drinking. Nice, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely something that comes up at a lot of um, panel discussions, and it it's a very big question for us right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing is that you need to respect the people that have come before you, that you're not just replacing them, mm-hmm. you're honoring them. Yeah, you, you'd be surprised how often that's forgotten. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a company that just came in and bought another company, and they offered a package to any employee over the age of 40. Just 40? And that's hearsay. But okay, okay. It's, like, but that's young. That's young, exactly. <laughs> so you're, you're losing all these people with 15, 20 years of experience all the way up to 30, 40 years. Yeah. And you're expecting people to step up and you have this generation of new hires without mentors. Yeah. And so part of that's going to be seeking out your mentors. Mm-hmm. Find the people that are gone from those roles but still are in town. Yeah. Take them out to lunch. Pick their brains. And Everybody likes to talk about their experiences. Exactly. I mean, I love our industry for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of and, like what I'm doing with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one thing that I think we're going to see is that it's going to take some old ideas for our new plays to succeed that we've been looking at this shale, shale revolution as you're not going to drill a dry hole, but I think we need oh, to look at will. it exactly <laughs> and economically. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think we need to look at it as individual traps and individual, um, we need to look at it as almost a conventional play to mm-hmm. say, what are the sweet spots here? Okay. And so taking these guys who have done this for 30 or 40 years, they've seen everything. Mm-hmm. They understand that concept. Whereas we're coming in being trained out of the shale revolution. And I think we need to really understand basic petroleum geology and apply that to what we're learning, but using the new technology to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of bringing the old world into the new. And that's what the new leadership is going to be faced with, is how do you honor their traditions and truly not lose all of that work that has been done? Exactly. But still... Because we keep getting younger and younger. So some of those skill sets are being put to the wayside. They are. And But how a good leader is someone who's going to honor the people that, yeah, they can't use the machine the same way you can, mm-hmm. but their ideas are so valuable. Yeah. And how do you use the machine to help those ideas evolve and become the future of the oil field? Mm-hmm. And that's that's what those new leaders are going to have to do. They're going to have to find that balance. And it's it's going to be a difficult balance, but there there is room for a new idea and innovation and there's also room for the way we used to do it. Exactly. Well, does it still pay, or in your opinion, does it still pay to be in the geosciences? Because some would argue from the engineering standpoint, specializing is not necessarily the way to go in volatility. 
but you still need petroleum engineers. You still need subsurface teams. You still need petrophysicists. And those people are becoming harder to find. So does it still pay for the uh, younger generations to be interested in this line of work? I think geoscience in general, absolutely. We need to understand this world. We mm-hmm. need to understand the other worlds out there. Yeah. So <laughs> geoscience is not a dead science by mm-hmm. any means. Um, and if you're going into engineering, there are so many things you can do with a geoscience background. Mm-hmm. And School of Mines is a great place to do that. Just a little plug. I didn't go there, but I like it. Um, <laughs> it is right up the road. <laughs> so is Wyoming, though. I love you, Wyoming's Wyoming. awoming's awesome, too. <laughs> Shout out to my, my pokes up there. Um, but so what is the future hold for geoscience in this industry? That mm-hmm. Geoscience as a whole, we're good. There's plenty of opportunity there. Um, I am hesitant to recommend this industry unless it's your passion. There are, That's true. It's a lot of long nights. It is. Um, there are a lot of people who want to do this and who are already in it without jobs. Exactly. And I'm finding more and more of my friends that are laid off, they're not going back into petroleum. What are they branching to? Um, one friend just got an MBA and now she's at Ball Aerospace as a project manager. And she's Damn, good for her. pioneering the thought process of how they do business. Oh. And she's, she's an inspiration. I love that. <laughs> um, other people are going into environmental um, it's, and I think in this industry, you have to have a backup plan. Mm-hmm. You just, you never know when the rug's going to get pulled out from underneath you. Exactly. And that's a really scary prospect. But Especially if you have student loans. <laughs> and tiny humans. Yeah, tiny humans. a lot. <laughs> um, but it's, when it's your passion, it's hard to, to look at it mm-hmm. and not to think about every day not having this. I, yeah. I like what I do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard getting up several times a night. It's, but... But it's cool to think about the fact that right now we've been interrupted several times by my phone ringing because we're drilling 23,000 feet under the ground trying to stay in a 15-foot target. That is so cool. That's so amazing. It's amazing. (laughs) And it's fascinating to think about. Um, And I feel so fortunate to do it. So Mm -hmm. it it breaks my heart to say don't go into this field because it's amazing. Yeah. But – have a be backup plan. Of, yeah, be aware of what you're coming into. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about degrees. Do you get a PhD or a master's? And a PhD, are you overqualified? People might think you're too academic. Yeah. You have to have a master's. There is just no question. You have to have a master's to be a, a geologist in the petroleum industry. Okay. Um, but the other thing is you get 300 people applying to a job that you used to have 30 apply to. I so, know. It's kind of annoying. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. The market is flooded. <laughs> um, it's less flooded in certain areas, but it is flooded everywhere and that's opened the door for nepotism and it's not necessarily a bad thing but it's out there and you have to be aware that it's out there Mm -hmm. it's real yeah but i mean planning and knowing kind of where you where you stand it kind of gives you the opportunity to open the the tool bag to apply more opportunity or more to be willing to stretch more into outside of your discipline so do you see geologists or geophysicists or even petrophysicists being more valuable if they are willing to stretch outside of the roles that are in black and white for them? Yes, that's a really good point, especially at smaller companies. Mm-hmm. If you are limber and, for example, when I was at Bayless doing that um, regulatory work mm-hmm. and trying to permit that seismic, I was literally filling out permit applications and That's trying awesome, to, though. <laughs> yeah, and managing the archaeologist and the paleontologist and working with our general contractor who was managing writing the environmental assessment for us. Mm-hmm. And that's a project management skill set. Yeah. And if I didn't have that, I would not have thrived, been able to thrive at Bayless. Mm-hmm. And so someone who can handle 
out being a geologist, but doing this other work yeah. is someone who's going to be successful in this market. And that's the person that's going to stand apart from everyone else. If you can step into a role and notice that we're out of spoons in the office, order the spoons. Yeah, just it's do just it. A little, it's a little thing, but be that person who's going to make a difference on every level mm -hmm. and you're going to succeed. Yeah. And don't have an attitude about it. Don't be like, that's well, key. I ordered the spoons. Or I so proud of yourself. <laughs> yeah. Just be like, hey, we got this done. Yeah. And now I can eat my yogurt. So you've been watching what's happening in industry. You've seen the headlines. You're seeing what's happening in Colorado. I have no doubt that it's going to try and expand into more uh, oil-friendly type states. So from your perspective and your background, give us the five-year horizon that oil and gas is going to be maybe a 10-year if you think it's going to take that long. What do you see happening that's going to be a fundamental change across industry? That's a tough one. Um, <laughs> I didn't prep you for that one. Yeah, I'm sorry. no worries. <laughs> um, one piece of that is that we do have a code that we need to live by. We need what to be. What is that code? I haven't. We need to be responsible in developing oil and gas. Oh, 100%. we need to respect the people in our industry, around us, the people that as you're driving your truck down the road that live there mm -hmm. and the, the families that live there. Yes. And we need to respect the earth yeah. and what we're doing. There is no energy source that is completely innocuous to the earth. Correct. Uh, I mean, there was just an article in NPR about trying to recycle wind turbines and they can't. How, where where do you put a, a used wind turbine? They're massive and they just go into a landfill. So you have to think so about... There's a landfill big enough for those things? That's the problem. There's not. <laughs> and it's just thinking about the full life cycle of what you're doing and ways that you can make up for it or to better what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be the change, to be accountable for it and to make it better. Yeah. And personally, I am an environmentalist. Yeah. I, I would not do something I didn't believe in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one thing I like about Camino. It's aligned with my personal beliefs and my mission that we're going to produce oil and gas in the best way possible for mm -hmm. the environment and for safety. Yeah. And that's something the industry is going to have to come to terms with, that we're going to be held to a higher standard, higher accountability. And especially in Colorado. And especially, Colorado is a, a breeding ground and a proving ground for these environmental people to come in. You have Boulder. And we had that protest this weekend. Good yeah. Lord. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's hard because people don't understand that they got to the protest using oil and gas. They're wearing oil and gas as their clothing. They, it's literally every single thing you do, every single moment of your lives relates to oil and gas. Mm -hmm. And that's slowly changing, yes. but it is very real. And part of it is going to be educating the public and not being defensive. It's been defensive. very hard to do. People like headlines. They like scare yep. tactics. And I think that's part of the problem is that people like the scare tactics. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a really big issue. But mm -hmm. I have friends that I've worked with. I worked with Wildlands Restoration Volunteers up in Boulder. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of people I worked with there, and they respect me. And so when they see a headline, they call me and say, hey, can you explain I this headline? I love that. And so getting yourself into a place where people can learn to see you outside of the industry and respect your opinions, they come to you for science. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I hope I can continue to offer is to be that expert that people can trust. Yes. I'm not going to falsify anything. I'm yeah. going to, I'm, if <laughs> you can't, no, exactly. <laughs> it's all public. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, that's going to be very important is to be patient and to understand that people are scared. Yeah. And they don't have the background that I have to understand the subsurface that yeah, fracking, if you don't understand it, that's terrifying. Well, it sounds like a bad word. So. Yeah. And 
that's something that the industry needs to take control of. And we've, we lost control of that. Yes. And Almost so that, purposely so. We just yeah, ignored it for a while. Exactly. And so I think as we, as we start to come around to that, hopefully it will get better. I agree with that. So you are very busy. You're heavily involved in AAPG RMAG. You've got kids and we can hear them. <laughs> you know Sorry. what I mean? No, 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 they're fine. But like, I mean, you have a real life. Your life does not just revolve around the office. However, you manage quite a bit at your office. So for those of us who like to get, you know, direction on how do you stay organized? How do you not lose your mind? How do you make sure that what you're doing is effective, efficient, and you know, actually goes to get the job done. Can you take us through your day from a 12 a.m. to 11.59 p.m.? What do you do that has allowed you to manage all that you do and stay ahead? That's a good question. I didn't, <laughs> yeah, a day, a day feels longer than 24 hours. Does it really? <laughs> um, I feel like when I, when I took this, I was deciding between two jobs when I came to Camino, mm -hmm. and I called one of my mentors and I asked her, what do I do? Mm -hmm. How do I make this decision? And she said, you have to go with Camino. It's an amazing opportunity. Let's see what happens. Yeah. But it is going to be a lot of time and it's going to be very hard. Yeah. So how do you control that? And she had some great advice just to think about all the things that you do for, for your family and see what you can outsource mm -hmm. in a reasonable way. So we have an au pair who helps out with the kids. That's awesome. And so I can leave for work at six in the morning and he watches the kids. Yeah. And I can come home at six or seven at night and that's fine. But fortunately, I work in a very family-friendly office, so I can come, I can leave the office at four and get the kids to bed and then work after they go to yeah. bed. It's FaceTime's important, but it's not the only factor. And there's no question that everyone is working very hard. Otherwise, exactly. we wouldn't be successful. Exactly. Um, one thing I found that I have to do is I have to exercise. Otherwise, I lose my mind. Everyone says that. I love that. <laughs> it's such, especially being in Colorado, it's just, yeah. I'm just going to go run up North Table. I'll be back. You can run up North Table. Well, I know oh I have plantar God. fasciitis from running up North Table, but... Oh, my God. <laughs> used to. But now I'm a stress case because I can't. Um, but I feel like finding that outlet that is uh -huh. going to let you function is the key. And also, as ridiculous as it sounds, finding places that you can take the morning call. We have a morning call seven days a week. Yeah. And so I know where I can get good enough service to have a hotspot on Mount Galbraith and skiing Bertha Pass. Oh, and I like that. I just bring my computer with me everywhere and I can steer a well from anywhere in Colorado that has service. So I've just kind of mapped out little areas that I know I can steer a well from. Yeah. And you, as long as you have your computer, going back to that oil field technology, we mm -hmm. have, it's amazing what you can do with internet. Yeah. So if you can have a hotspot, you can steer a well or you can be <laughs> on a morning call and it's, it's balancing that with your life. Mm -hmm. And it's, kind of weird to go mountain biking with the laptop you just hope you don't fall yeah no kidding <laughs> but it's if I want to live the life I want to live and work the job I want to work then I have to find that balance and I do and it's it's not easy by any means so what time but, do you wake up in the morning and what time do you go to bed um it really varies the I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old so you're always awake yeah yeah <laughs> basically okay <laughs> um the my my sweet girl just is so tired at the end of the night that she just falls right asleep. Aww. But my little boy, we try to get them to bed asleep by eight, but that doesn't work. He's usually asleep by like nine thirty. So okay. I lay down with him and cuddle him and try to get him to calm down and listen to multiple podcasts about sleep. I'm just like, mommy, that was nice. Let's do another one. Like, Why are you jumping on the bed? Be like, um, I'm ready for bed. Please, please. Um, and then, oh, I need more water. I have to go potty. Mommy, mommy, have you? Did I do what? Mommy, 
mommy, mommy, mommy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So You're always on call. <laughs> yeah. So he's usually asleep by 9.30 and then um, go find my husband mm-hmm. and be like, hey, hey, you, how's it been? <laughs> Haven't seen you in a while. Nice to see you. <laughs> yeah. And then do laundry and yeah. clean and try to get the house organized and I don't know, bed by 11 usually okay. and then up around five or okay. so, but usually up a couple times a night if I'm steering, then up for that or yeah. um my daughter inevitably has a nightmare or yeah. gets cold or has to tell me that she's gonna go potty oh really that's a big deal <laughs> mommy i went potty okay good <laughs> super really it's psyched. an accomplishment <laughs> i know some adults that can't do that yeah, right <laughs> <laughs> and incidentally just... they do work in the field <laughs> oh no but they're just they're so sweet and innocent right now that i don't want to lose this experience as a mom of yeah, these exactly. incredible little people but I also don't want to lose experience as a geologist. So it's definitely finding a balance. So I lose out on sleep and taking care of myself, mm-hmm. but I love it and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Do you do anything? Do you have to have your coffee in the morning? Anything like that? Do you answer emails in the morning? Um, I try just, yeah, I guess those tactics. I try, this was ridiculous. At Bayless, I would try to keep the number of emails in my inbox under my age. And so every that year I funny. every year I do it, I get one more email I can have in there. <laughs> I think right now we get like 300 emails a day just with all the op stuff going on. Yeah. So that's just not feasible. But I do try to set aside time where I turn off my email and just work. Close like my door, that. put on my headphones, rock out to whatever I need to rock out to, podcast or yeah. ridiculous Metallica um, <laughs> and, and work. So I think part of it is just understanding that you need to have a calendar and you need to respect your calendar. Yeah. And then I will spend an hour or two a day going through email and trying to respond to things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm chairing a special interest group with APG right now, um, involved with office in RMAG. Um, I've, I have a lot going on right now. Yeah, so you do. trying to set aside a calendar time for all of that mm-hmm. and to keep my network going. One thing at Bayless, so much of that company is who you know. Yeah. Trying to sell and acquire deals. Bayless wanted me to be as involved as possible so everyone knew who I was. And you were so well networked. Like well, you are a champ at networking. <laughs> thank you. People should like you should write a book. People should take note. <laughs> networking 101. Cat style. Um but it's it's hard because getting to Camino, that's not my job anymore. Yeah. And, but I don't want to lose those people that have made my exactly. life so rewarding. Exactly. And so finding, it, it's really come down to just, okay, two days a week, I'll go have lunch with friends mm-hmm. or I'll have coffee one day a week. Yeah. But to make sure I can still go to the gym and still get my work done, it's it's a balance, but it comes down to calendar management. And then also keeping track of what you're working on. Um, I keep a very strict library of papers I've read where I summarize a paper in a PDF and then I attach that to the PDF as the first page. And then I write down the, um, the actual title and the author mm-hmm. and I store it in the library. So I can always go back and find what I've read and keep track of the That's work impressive. I've done so you don't lose stuff. Yeah. Cause I feel like so much of what you do can get lost in, <laughs> there's an ice cream truck. There's an by. ice cream truck. <laughs> Just one go with ice cream. Um, this is life and oil and gas. Come on. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, so I think that's that's something that's key is just staying organized in what you use most. Mm-hmm. And I am the queen of post-it notes. My oh, friends I always give them. me post-it notes. <laughs> and if you put it on your computer screen, you are going to do it. Yeah, you actually will. Because you can just it, you can't do anything until it's moved. Yeah, and so that's, that's true. been that's been really helpful. Just these <laughs> post-it notes of ideas and things to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I keep. I keep notebooks and I have probably 10 notebooks throughout my career of everything. And if I make a map, I print it off really, really small and I write the details of how I made the map 
And then if someone's like, oh, what what vintage is this map? I can go back through my notebook and be like, oh, hey, it's here. I made it on this day with this with these data. And oh. that has transformed me. That's a really and, good idea. And keeping track of things. Because part of my job at Camino is I am the mapper. Yeah. I, define the stratigraphy and I map it. And mm-hmm. so people come to me when there's a question. Yeah. And so I can go back through my notebook and say, oh, I mapped that mapped that then and we've gotten new wells since then, so I'll redo it. And just those little things, it's been awesome okay. and very helpful. I like that. It's um, a really just, good idea. And then taking <laughs> very specific notes at every meeting and mm-hmm. having little boxes that you have to check before you can turn the page so yes. to make sure you get things done. Where is the ice cream truck hanging out? It is like it's right here. They they hear your kids. No, I'm they kidding. do. <laughs> I'm hungry. Um, so that that's definitely something. Well, do you have a book, podcast, or other resource that you would recommend that's brought you value? And it can be absolutely anything. Yes. And I wrote it down, and I need to find it. Okay. <laughs> I don't know where it went. Um, one of my favorite things is to listen to podcasts and read books that are completely unrelated to what I do. Um, that's smart, though. Radio Lab is one of my favorite all-time podcasts. It is Radio Lab. Yeah, they okay. are so effective at communicating ideas related to science and technology and Ooh. new ideas, and they they are relentless in their research. Mm-hmm. And I love that about them. And I want to do that every day. And yeah. so I respect what they do. Um, I also like some of the social podcasts, um, and I'm completely blanking on names right now, um, but. <laughs> I think it's important to stay up with what's going on on a daily basis. So listening to up first every morning to see what's going on, um, invisibilia to understand people better. I think there's so much more. I spend every day working on geology. There's so much more in the world around me and so many other types of science that I think it's important to branch out Mm -hmm. and to respect these other sciences and see, is there a breakthrough somewhere else that we can apply to what we're doing. And then I listen to Story Pirates and Brains On and Dream Big and all these podcasts (laughs) for kids, which are really fun because it's completely unrelated to what I do. And it's it's exciting to see people being inventive and what kids are being exposed to. Mm -hmm. And that helps me interact with the public. I do a lot of public outreach um, at science fairs and on panels and, hey, podcasts now. Is this your first podcast? This is my first podcast. Oh my God, yay. Cheers. (laughs) Um, And so I think it's very important to understand what other people are being exposed to as far as science so that I can relate my science in that way. I'm Mm -hmm. doing a science night on Thursday and um, trying to figure out what's going to excite the students about geoscience. And I'm really excited to break geodes and wear my inflatable dinosaur costume and just bring science to these kids and watch them explore this world. You should videotape their faces while you do that. Oh my gosh. I bet you they will just be mesmerized. I hope so. (laughs) But to to tell a kid there used to be an ocean here and their eyes just light up and you show them a fossil and a a paleogeographic reconstruction of where we used to be. And that, that is the other thing that drives me is just sharing the science with the world or the people around me. I love that. Do you want to see some paleo- paleogeographic reconstructions? Yeah, I actually kind of do. <laughs> Kat, thank you so much for this. This has been absolutely wonderful. You have really, you've stimulated my brain. I feel like I've learned so much in this last hour with you, and I cannot wait to have this posted so everybody else can send you questions and comments and pick your brain further. So we'll definitely get you back on in the future. But thank you so much for everything, including the wine. So Cheers. cheers. <laughs> And I cannot wait. Thank you again. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay. What did y'all think of Kat? She is so awesome, right? I loved getting her take on the geo community. She has the best insight. 
Anyway, if you have any thoughts or questions for Kat, you can shoot them to me via Facebook, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Let me know, and we will be sure to circle up with her here again soon. All right, guys, before you go, if today's episode brought you any sort of value, please rate, review, and subscribe. The more five stars we get, the more often we're able to deliver quality content from industry influencers. And as always, if you have a topic or influencer you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, Instagram, or at our website, www.thecrudeaudacity.com. We greatly appreciate your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.